guys, go ahead and be turning to 2 Corinthians chapter 11 this morning. And as you are turning to 2 Corinthians chapter 11, welcome all of you. I appreciate you being with the, uh, us in the Lord's house this morning. Members, always good to see you, but I see some guests here with us today. Now, thank you. Uh, thank you for being a part of our services today. Happy Father's Day uh, as well to all the dads out there uh, this morning. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, we're in part two. We, two weeks ago, last time uh, that I was with you, we started talking about a time to boast and where Paul is giving us an opportunity uh, to see in his life and what he's experiencing, what's going on in the church, an opportunity to boast in the Lord. And we see this last, last time we were together in chapter 10, verses 17 and 18, the scripture says, but he who glorifies uh, glories, let him glory in the Lord for not he who commends himself is approved, but whom the Lord commends. So he gives us a, a platform of boasting is that, and that is that it is in the Lord. We pick up in chapter 11 this morning, in verses 11 through 15, he continues the thought of boasting. In fact, he really hasn't boasted yet. That doesn't take place until next week in verses 16 and following. The first part of chapter 11, chapter 11 he gives us the reason why he is about to boast. And the reason why he is about to boast or about to share uh, some things that's on his heart is that the false leaders which are teaching has infiltrated into the church of Corinth. You know, if you keep telling a lie over and over and over and over and over again, sooner or later people are going to believe it. And if you still can't believe it, all you got to do is put it on Facebook because everybody believes everything that is on Facebook. But what was happening in the church pre-Facebook days <laughs> was that they were teaching these false things. And the church is beginning some to accept it as truth. So Paul says, let me just share a few things going on in my life. Let me, let me boast a little bit about the Lord and what they're saying about what's happening with them. Let me share some things happening in my life. The Bible says in Romans 1 verse 25 that the people there, they exchange the truth of God for, the, for a lie. And that happens all around us. It's in, even today in 2017 is the same application as it was in the days of Corinth. Everything that you hear and every preacher that you listen to and every Bible study that you read may not be accurate and it may not be right. And you have to understand how to identify that which is false and that which is true. So Paul gives us some reason this morning uh, to boast. The Bible says in verse, 11, in verse 1 of chapter 11, it says, Oh, that you would bear with me a little folly. And indeed, you do bear with me. He says, let me just kind of just be a little bit foolish if I can. And he says in verse number 2, he says, For I am jealous with you with a godly jealousy. For I have betrothed you to one husband that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. But I fear, lest somehow as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, so your minds may be corrupted from the, from the simplicity that is in Christ. For if he who comes preaches another Jesus whom you have not preached, or if you receive a different spirit which you have not received, or a different gospel which you have not accepted, you may well put up with it. For I consider that I am not all inferior to the most eminent apostles, even though I am untrained in speech, yet I am not in knowledge. But we have been thoroughly manifested among you in all 
things. Number one, the reason why Paul begins to boast in the latter part of this chapter is because the purity of the church is at stake. The purity of the church is at stake. You want to divide a church? You want to destroy a church? Bring in teachers that teach something that is contrary to what the gospel is. Believe something that is contrary to what the Bible says. So Paul says in verse 2 that I am jealous for you. Jealousy is the sin, but not godly jealousy. He says there is a godly jealousy. I love you so much that I am not willing to let you die at the hands of false teachers and false apostles. So therefore I want to stand and to speak out and to boast in the Lord and to brag about what Christ is doing because the purity of you, the church of Corinth, it is at stake. So therefore I want to do that. I want to share. I want to show you, number one, his love for the church. And how he brings that out. He says, I have with you a godly jealousy. The phrase it actually means jealousy of God. That I love you so much. And he says in verse number 2, this is the second part. He says, I have betrothed you to one husband. That I may present you a chaste virgin to Christ. Now just like today in Jewish society. And kind of like in, in our society as well. There's two different parts to a Jewish wedding. There's the betrothal part where a man and woman come together sometimes as a childhood, sometimes as a child. But for the majority, as they're older in life, they are what they're called betrothed or engaged for about a year. Now, in Jewish eyes, they're already considered husband and wife. The only thing that's not happening is any type of physical activity. And the father of the bride, what his purpose is, is to present his daughter with a pure, a virgin to the groom, to the future husband. So the Bible says in verse 2, I have betrothed you to one husband that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. The church of Corinth was the bride of Christ. The church of Corinth was started by the apostle Paul. It was his responsibility as the spiritual father to present this church one day to the Lord Jesus Christ. It is a church without spot, a church without blemish, a church that is pure in the eyes of Christ, a church that is not falling into the trap of false teaching like so many churches are today. So Paul says, I have betrothed you. Not only did he have a love for the church, but he gives a second part. He gives a warning to the church. Look at verse 3. He says, I fear. He says, I love you. I'm jealous for you. I'm your spiritual father. He says, but I fear. Lest somehow as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, so your minds may be corrupted by the simplicity that is in Christ. Paul is writing to a church. And the majority of the church has repented. They'd come back to the true Bible teaching. But there were still others that Paul is, is trying to reach out to. And he says here, I fear lest some of you fall into that trap of deception like Satan the serpent did with Eve. You know, when Eve went in the garden, it was not Eve's desire it was not Eve's intention to fall but through the deception of the enemy through the craftiness of the enemy she chose to fall every person who's a part of the church your intention is not to be deceived by the enemy your intention is not to fall into the trap of deception that's not anybody's intention 
But it happens so often because of the craftiness of the enemy that is out there. He says, so your minds may be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. Now you look at that verse, and the verse we're going to look at here in just a second later on in the chapter, it sounds like, it, it not, doesn't sound like it is, these false teachers are teaching a false gospel. And by what verse 3 says, and then what I mentioned in just a second, it sounds like that they're teaching something besides just the grace of God through salvation, through faith. That they're teaching a works-based salvation. They're taking apart the simplicity of the gospel of Jesus. And what Paul is saying is, you've been deceived by the enemy. And he has shadowed your eyes. He has closed your eyes by the simplicity that's in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Folks, Jesus is the only way to heaven. This is the only book we read. This is the only book we teach. It's the only book we preach. And if anybody else teaches anything contrary to this, they are a false teacher. And we'll see that here in verse 4 in just a second. But he gives a warning out here to the church. Lack of discernment. Lack of discernment is a major problem in churches today. Our battle, we've learned, is not against each other. It's against an ideology. It's against an ideology of the enemy. Where sometimes the church will tolerate sin at the sake of unity. All right, we're fixing to hit home here for a little bit. Because you're, you're looking at this and you say, yeah, this church had a whole lot of problems. I'm glad we ain't like them. I'm talking about the church as a whole. Oftentimes we tolerate sin for the sake of unity. If I've heard it once, I've heard it a thousand times. Brother John, we don't want to hurt someone's feelings. So we'd rather let them live in sin and not point them to the truth of the Lord Jesus Christ. We don't bring people back to the gospel, lack of discernment. It's that major problem. Sometimes the church will tolerate sin and error for the sake of unity. When that happens, friend, it makes it easy for the enemy to deceive you received a letter this week because we've got uh, deacon elections coming up here in a couple of weeks. And it's an opportunity for the church. One of the things about the church is there's two offices in the church. It's the office of a pastor. And that word pastor is used interchangeably in the New Testament with overseer and, and, and bishop and elder, the staff, the leadership, the pastor of the church. And the second office is the office of a deacon. Which means there ought to be just as much prayer and just as much uh, understanding calling a pastor as there is calling a deacon. Or calling a deacon as there is calling a pastor. Oftentimes when you call a pastor you have high standards when it comes to, to, to bringing in someone to lead the church. And you spend a whole lot of time in prayer and it's a focal point of the church. But deacon elections is just kind of routine and habitual. And, and, and it's the people that we seem to like the most that become a, a deacon. And that's, that's not right. And that's not wrong. Uh, excuse me, that is wrong. That's not right. Oftentimes we get deceived even by bringing in someone to lead our church in the office of a deacon. Now, the reason why I say that is because we have an opportunity here in a couple of weeks to elect five men who will serve as a deacon. But the enemy will deceive us on a lot of different areas. Number one, he will deceive us by choosing men who are just popular in the church. We don't need the men who are the most popular in the church. Neither does the Lord. Number two, we don't need men who are elected without proper testing. 
Now, all this comes from 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 8. In fact, verses, excuse me, verses 9 through 13. And it's also in our, uh, in our bylaws, in our election of a deacon, the qualifications of a deacon. So this is not John Bowler's theology. It's the biblical theology, but it's the theology of First Baptist Church when it comes to calling a deacon, when it comes to bringing in someone to lead our, uh, our church to be able to serve in that capacity. For many churches, the only criteria is their marital status. As long as someone's not divorced, they're qualified to be a deacon. And that's deception from the enemy. Because there are so many different things in the First Timothy chapter 3. There's ten qualifications of a deacon, not just one. Yet oftentimes we just look at a list and we say if they're not married, if they're not divorced, or vice versa, then they're eligible to be a deacon. And that's falling into the trap of, of deception. So what makes a biblical deacon? According to 1 Timothy 3, the beliefs that I hold, the beliefs that you hold, the beliefs that we hold as a, as a member of First Baptist Church. Number one, a deacon is a servant. A deacon is a servant. By nature, the name deacon is a servant. Guys, if you don't want to serve, don't be a deacon. Don't put your name on the ballot. It's okay to say no. If all of our nursery workers were somehow to call in sick today... We're going to be okay. I've got 14 nursery workers that I can go to, and they're called deacons. Why? Because they are servants. Now, you may not bring your children if you found out there were deacons in, in the nursery, and we didn't have any of our special ladies in there serving. But you see where I'm coming from. By nature, they are deacons. They are servants of the Lord Jesus Christ. I confess to you, and I want you to hear very loud and clearly, I cannot visit every person in this church. I need help. I need help with our widows. I need help with our homebound. I need help with our guests that are coming. I need help. And that group that comes alongside is the deacons. Those are the ones that serve. Those are the ones that visit. Those are the ones that check on widows. Those are the ones that visit the homebound. Those are the ones that are hand handling the, the, the ministry of the church so that the leadership and the staff can handle the ministry of the word and of prayer. A biblical deacon is a servant. A biblical deacon also also is an example they portray the example they're the same here as they are on the ball field they're the same here as they are in the barbershop they're the same here as they are at work they are an example for us to look forward to they are an example for young men to look up to to say one day I want to grow and serve this church in the office of a deacon because it's a blessing not a burden and it's a calling that one places on your life it's an example. Number three, a deacon ought to be one who is faithful in attendance. If deacons don't know what time our prayer meeting starts, that's a good qualification to where they should not be a deacon of the church, a First Baptist church. That's straight in our bylaws. That's straight in our covenant. That there are those that are faithful in attendance, showing up just on Sunday morning. It's not a standard to serve as a deacon of the Lord Jesus Christ. Deacons handle issues in the church. How would you know what's going on if you're not here? And I say all that not to put down. I say all that to be biblical and not to be deceived. The church is the strongest when there is a serving body of men that are coming along the staff and coming along the pastor and are helping with the work of the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. The church is the most unified and the most strongest when there's a group of godly men serving faithfully in the office of a deacon. So you pray about it. Search your heart. 
and ask God, God, who are the five men that need to serve this, this year? Who are the five men that you've called at First Baptist Church to, to step up and to serve in the office of a deacon? Ones that will attend, ones that will visit, ones that have an example of godly leadership in their life. The Bible says down here in verse 4, he continues to share his fear. Verse 4 says, if he who comes preaches another Jesus whom we have not preached, how can you preach another Jesus? There's only one Jesus. Well, what they're preaching here is not Jesus, the Son of God, not Jesus, the only way to heaven, not Jesus, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. They're preaching Jesus as a prophet or as some political guru or some great teacher of the, of, 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 of the Scripture, teacher of the law. So they're still teaching Jesus, but not just the Jesus that we believe. Jesus is the Son of God. He is the only way to heaven. But he says here, if he preaches another Jesus, Jesus, which you have not received. He says, if you receive a different spirit, that's not the Holy Spirit. So if it's not the Holy Spirit, it's a demonic spirit. He says, then the spirit you've received or of a different gospel, which you haven't accepted. He said, you may well put up with it. He said, guys, I am fearful. That there are some of you like the church of Galatia, you started going very, very well. But now you've stopped and something has happened in your life. Something has you have strayed because of the false teaching that is going on. So he mentions the purity of the church. And he goes in verse 5 and 6 and he talks about the leadership. His own leadership in the church. He says, I consider that I am not all inferior to the most eminent apostles. He, he is... He is as a play on words there, he says these, these super apostles, they called themselves super apostles, eminent apostles. They were, had a special uh, a standing with God. Paul says, I'm not inferior to them. He says, even though I'm untrained in speech, I don't stand up and I'm not very eloquent like they, those people are. I'm not this great orator, although Paul was a very uh, godly speaker, very powerful speaker. He says, I'm not coming in. He says in the first, first letter he wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, he says, when I came to you, I didn't come with eloquence of speech or, or of, of, of manly speech, but I came preaching the testimony of God and the testimony of the Lord Jesus Christ. He says, I'm not in knowledge. He says, I've got the knowledge. He says, we've been thoroughly manifested among you in all things. So he begins to boast because of the purity of the church. Let me tell you, folks, when the purity of the church is at stake, I pray the church speaks up. I pray the church is vocal. I pray the church begins to boast about whether it's leadership issues whether it is showing the love of Jesus and a godly jealousy, whether it's somebody preaching a different Jesus, a different gospel, a different spirit, that we as believers, not worried about unity, not worried about hurting feelings, but worried about, uh, uh, worried about not pleasing Jesus. That's what Paul says here in these first six verses. But he goes on to verse 7, not only for the sake of the unity of the church, but also because of a life of humility to be shown. Paul says, let me give you another example of why I'm about to boast. Verse 7 says, did I commit sin? In humbling myself that you may be exalted because I preached the gospel of, you, of God to you free of charge? He said, I robbed other churches taking wages from them to minister to you. And when I was present with you and in need, I was a burden to no one, for I lacked the brethren who came from Macedonia supplied. 
And in everything I kept myself from being burdensome to you, and so I will keep myself. Paul says, I came to you, the church of Corinth, a church that had all of the capacity to support Paul. They had the funds, they had the resources, they had the people. Yet Paul says, I chose not to take anything from you because the false teachers came specifically for money. They were charging for them to speak. They were charging for them to pray. So Paul says, look, I want you to know that I am a true apostle. That although I was in need, I chose not to take anything from you. Now, I know what you're thinking. Brother John, I wish all preachers took that to heart in verse 7. That all preachers would preach for free and not charge anything or not accept anything. This is not a, a recommendation not to pay preachers. And not to pay staff. What Paul was saying was, there was other churches that provided for Paul is saying, hey, I'm not in it for the money. I want you to know that the love of money is the root of all evil. And here you've got these false teachers that are great orators. Their, 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 their eloquence is out there. And all the reason why they're doing it is simply for themselves. Doing it for the money. Things haven't changed a lot today. There are many people who stand behind pulpits and the only reason why they're doing it is because of money. And whether they're charging here or charging there, it's, the, it's the, the, the persona of their character that they're just simply in it for the money. Paul says, and he uses a strong word in verse number 8, I robbed other churches. Neither way, he says, I took from other churches. Churches that, like Macedonia, you remember in chapter 8, which was a poor church. He says, they ministered to me. And they provided for me and it gave me the opportunity not to take money from you. I'm a tent maker. Paul says, I'm a tent maker by trade. I can go out and I can work with my hands and I can provide for my own. And the reason why I'm doing that is not because I don't believe you should provide. It's I want to separate myself from those who are teaching falsely. That I'm willing to do it of no charge. I'm willing to do it not of a burden for you. He says in verse 9, everything I kept myself from being a burdensome to you and I will keep myself. Verse 10, as the truth of Christ is in me, no one shall stop me from this boasting in the regions of Acacia. Why? Because I don't love you? He says, God knows. The false teachers were saying, well, if you're not taking any money, you're not a real apostle. You're just a fake. You're just kind of the, 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 the lower class. You're not the super apostles. And Paul says, you know I love you. And if you don't, God does. And that's all that matters in life is to know that God knows. And he does. Verse 12, but what I do, I will continue to do. That I may cut off the opportunity from those who desire an opportunity to be regarded just as we are in the things of which they boast. Paul says, I'm doing what I'm doing. Because of the sake of the church, not only the purity of the church, but the humility that is to be shown of a true apostle and a true believer. And then he says in verse 13 through 15, number three, because of the reality of a deceptive work. Because of the reality of a deceptive work. Verse 13 says, for such. Now he calls them out. For such are false apostles, deceitful workers transforming themselves into apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for Satan himself transforms himself into an angel of light. Therefore, it is no great thing if his ministers also transform themselves into ministers of righteousness, whose end will be according to their works. The reality 
of a deceptive work. Satan, contrary to, to writings and, and drawings, and it's not, he's, he's, he's not a red man with a pitchfork with a pointed tail. This evil face. No. We see this in Scripture. The only time the word angel of light identifies him with Satan is that Satan himself transforms himself into an angel of light. Satan, his desire is not to persecute the church. His desire is to join the church. His desire is to, to, to feel people who quote Scripture and sing hymns and, 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 and can be involved in the church and, and, and sneak his way in through that. That's what he wants to do. He is a deceptor. And he transforms himself into this angel of light. So he doesn't have a pitchfork, horns, a pointed tail. Instead, he is a beautiful creature. We see that from the beginning of time. He's most effective, not when he's our enemy, but when he's a false friend. When he sits behind us and sits in front of us and sits beside us in church and is deceived by the enemy and seeks to destroy and devour what the Lord has created. That's what's going on in the church of Corinth. This week I had an opportunity to be your messenger and I appreciate it so much. Uh, at the Southern Baptist Convention. And I'm a Southern Baptist for a reason. I believe uh, that there's something greater than a, than a denomination, but I'm a Southern Baptist for several reasons. Number one, I believe in the local autonomy of the church. I believe the church is run by people. The church is unified by people. I believe in, in the ordinances of the church, like baptism and the Lord's Supper, the biblical view of baptism and the biblical view of the Lord's Supper or communion. And if you don't think... That the enemy is seeking to destroy the Southern Baptist Convention. Then all you've got to do is turn on your television. Or read social media. Southern Baptist Convention, God is doing an amazing work. Whether it's in an international mission board overseas. Or whether it's on the North American mission board here. Or whether it's, it's through this agency or this agency. We have so much work to do. And we have our flaws just like anybody else. But God is doing a work. And we are being bombarded on every side and on every front when it comes to our convention. Satan seeks to devour and seeks to get in to our denomination, our convention, to divide and to destroy and to stop what God has started. And I pray as a Baptist, I pray as a member of the Southern Baptist Church that we would speak out. That we would speak out concerning the purity of the church. That we would boast and speak out when it comes to humility. What separates us from false teachers, I pray, is a humble spirit and a humble heart. That we would speak out because deception is real. The work of the enemy is real. It is all around us. And Paul says, I fear. I fear. That it's in the church. I wish I could stand here and say. I don't fear. But I think every pastor. Needs to say that. Because no matter how unified you may be. It can be all gone in a minute. So that's a, that's a concern for every leader. We rejoice when things are rejoiced. But deep down inside. We fear. We fear. And the way to keep the unity of the church is Jesus 
and only Jesus. His Spirit and only His Holy Spirit. His gospel and only His gospel. Jesus Christ, He's the way. He's the truth and He's the life. And no man can come to the Father but by Him. So if you're here this morning and you don't know the Lord as your Savior, or maybe you've been deceived and you're basing your salvation on works, you're basing your salvation on a baptism, you're basing your salvation on an ordinance, you're basing your salvation on a membership in a church, friend, that's a different spirit and that's a different gospel. Is the only way. Would you give your life to Him today? Would you cry out to Him and say, Lord Jesus, I know today You are the only way to heaven. I believe that You died for me. I believe that You rose from the grave. You know, nobody lived like Je Nobody was born like Jesus. Nobody lived like Jesus. Nobody died like Jesus. Nobody rose again like Jesus. And nobody's interceding like Jesus. And nobody's coming back like Jesus. He's your hope. Would you give your life to Him? In just a moment, we're going to have an invitation. I'm going to ask if you would to step out. To step out and you coming, you'd come to me and say, Brother John, I want to give my life to Jesus. I hear what you're saying. I hear that Jesus is the only way. And I'm tired of living my life. I want to repent of my sins and put my faith and trust in Him today. If you need to do that, I want you to come. After I pray here in just a second. You may have other decisions that you need to make. Maybe you want to join this church. Maybe you're ready to follow the Lord in believer's baptism. Whatever that is, we can work all of that out. But you be obedient to whatever God's saying to you today. Father, we love you this morning. Lord, may we speak out when the purity of the church is at stake. May we speak out to show humility to a lost and dying world. And may we speak out because of the reality of a work that is deceptive. That will always be here till you come back. So God, I pray you'd help us in that. Or those who need to come to be saved this morning, Lord, as we extend the offer of the free gift of salvation. Lord, would they come? And those who have other decisions, Lord, may we be obedient to you in Jesus' name. Let's stand and 